because when I was when I was a student, uh, to be liberal meant learning how to think for yourself, and now it means learning what to think, not how, but we'll tell you what to think, and you don't have to think for yourself. This book came out, created a huge shock wave among the elites of uh, New York, uh, whose uh, sp very special, prestigious project to create this chair at Columbia was undermined because of this book, and the Shankaracharya decided not to go with it. A huge amount of digestion of Indian thought has been going on into the West, mathematics, the digestion of astronomy, the digestion of the origin of botany. The, and one of the most important things digested is what I call mind sciences. The modern mind sciences, you know, if you go to uh, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, it's a very important uh, new kind of, uh, uh, you know, psychological theory of clinical, in clinical psychology. And the DSM-5, which is the manual prescribed for psychiatry, that is the official psychiatry manual, it, it lists all these techniques. These are the techniques that are allowed. But cognitive behavior therapy is basically taken from Buddhism. Dialectic behavior therapy is taken from Buddhism. A huge amount of research by the Mind Life Institute, which is the, the, the Dalai Lama's institute, uh, set up with Western uh, physicists and my, uh, uh, bio, uh, biologists and uh, medical experts and philosophers. It has been there for 25 years. In fact, Infinity Foundation supported it in the early stages when they started, because I thought this will bring, uh, bring a cross dialogue between the civilizations. And I supported it. But then I realized it's a one-way street. They're just sucking the knowledge. Namaste everybody, my name is Ria. I'm Head of Events for KCL Hindu Society. I'd like to welcome you to our event with Rajiv Ji talking about challenging academic Hinduphobia. A big thank you to Rajiv Ji for taking out his precious time to come here and take part in this event. As a founder of the Infinity Foundation, he has conducted extensive research on civilizations and their historical, social sciences and mind sciences perspectives. Uh, we will have Rajivji addressing us shortly. Before I hand over to Rajivji, may I just point out that if you would like to pose a question to Rajivji in the upcoming Q&A session that we will have, please do make use of the QR code that you have located on all three screens uh, to your left, to your right, and right behind me. Uh, that being said, over to Rajivji. Thank you very much, and uh, delighted to be here. Uh, I always love addressing students because I think they are not only the future, but less biased. That used to be what I said all these years. But recently, in the United States, I don't think I can say that they are the least biased. Because we have a culture called wokeism, which is a made-in-USA made version of Marxism. It's a, you might find it surprising that US is Marxist, but you might think it's not Marxist. But it's a kind of in disguise. A basic idea being that uh, all society can be organized into oppressors and oppressed, which is good, we, I understand, we've been colonized, so we are oppressed. A uh, lot of people are oppressors. Sometimes we become oppressors. The same person can be both, that's the thing, you know. As an individual, I can be oppressed by some people in some context, and I can be the oppressor. So I don't think you can just pigeonhole as a, a, an individual and say, you are oppressed in all respects, and you are the oppressor in all respects, because they may be both, in, different situations. Uh, 
And you certainly cannot take a whole community. All the people of one kind, they're all oppressors, and all the people of one kind are all oppressed. This is so ridiculous. So there is a flaw right there. Then the next is that uh, the oppressed should not uh, should be the ones with special entitlement to speak, and they are called privileged classes in the U.S. law, uh, and so you cannot attack them; otherwise, you'll be uh, you'll, you'll have law against you. Uh, whereas the oppressors uh, can be cancelled; you cannot speak because the only way to counter you uh, is to have have to have reverse discrimination against you. You've been oppressing, so now we need to have reverse oppression to balance it out. That's sort of the, the, the balance of oppression. So that's sort of madness, if you will. Uh, that's the logic. Uh, and then uh, the uh, logic goes further and says uh, meritocracy is itself a system of oppression. Meritocracy. So our community worked very hard. In my case, came to the United States, worked very hard. There was no, uh, nobody helping us. We, we didn't get in because of some identity or quota or politics. Neither anyone in USA nor anyone in India helped anybody like me. But we were very successful because we worked very hard. And the American story, the American dream is based on merit. Uh, and I, I found that the Americans are so open to merit that I came at the age of 20, and I've lived in the US for 53 years. I never had to go use any any uh, contact or any uh, you know kind of uh, special treatment based on merit. I was treated very well. I went ahead, and where I didn't do well, I had to work harder. So that's the that's what made America such a great country, uh, meritocracy. But that is also under threat. That this uh, we need to get rid of meritocracy because meritocracy brings certain people in and keeps certain people out. Uh, and so uh, Harvard has, there's now a Supreme Court case in the U.S. Uh, challenging Harvard's admission policy. Uh, according to merit, 40% plus would be Asians. They admit, uh, they agree to that. But they, they, they agree that that would be the case. But they don't want more than 18% or, or something like that to be Asians. So there is a cap. Uh, so it's like in golf, you have a handicap. So uh, you have an ethnic handicap depending on your identity. So this is the new uh, uh, playing field in the United States. So I, don't, I no longer assume that students are able to think for themselves. I no longer assume. Because when I was, when I was a student, uh, to be liberal meant uh, learning how to think for yourself. And now it means learning what to think. Not how, but we'll tell you what to think, and you don't have to think for yourself. So this kind of doctrination, dogma, it's dictatorship, but that's called that's what it is now. It's very sad, but that's where it is, and it's come to places like England from United States. It started in the United States, and it traveled to India everywhere. So I I I am a critic of uh, I I provoke, which is what students are supposed to be taught how to provoke, how to think out of the box. So you think for yourself, and don't let the prior generation think for you. But you should think for yourself. Uh, so now that all is being thrown out. In, the, in many academic institutions in many parts of the world that's being thrown out. <clears throat> so uh, I'm here to tell you that for 30 years, I, this is uh, challenging things that are uh, considered a worldwide consensus or a consensus of the elite, I'd like to challenge them, uh, which because that's my, int I'm, I'm interested in doing that. Before that, I started out as a physicist, 
uh, and I came to the U.S. to do my Ph.D. in physics. I switched to computer science, and then I had a career in the corporate world in computer science as a, as a corporate person. And then I ran my own software house. And then I became a telecom into telecommunications, became a consultant to British Telecom was my first client. Uh, 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 Margaret Thatcher had, Margaret Thatcher had just privatized British Telecom. And uh, uh, so they didn't, they had all the money uh, to do new things, but they didn't know what to do. And so they hired consultants like me uh, to figure out how to get into the US market. So I helped them get into the US market. This is back in the 1980s and so on. So I used to come here every month for in those days, and I have good memories of uh, working in Britain. I had a lot of good friends here. And then I started my own companies, and then in the early 90s, I got rid of all my companies so that I could devote all my time doing this. Um, from success, where people worked for me and they all thought he's the boss, we do whatever he wants, to becoming a kind of a rebellious person going against the established traditions, established uh, many kinds of things in the world and challenging them because I enjoy doing that. I just do it because I enjoy doing that. I have, don't have any ambition. I have not gone into politics. I don't want to. I don't accept this or that position. I just like to think for myself. That's what I enjoy doing. And therefore, I enjoy meeting those young people, students who also are into free thinking and not those who are into this brand or that brand, this is left wing, this is right wing. I'm, I have both wings. I don't want to be chopped off. Okay, so I'm just doing all this to get this out of the table. So um, now I will, one way to introduce me is through my books. I'll give you one minute each on each book, and then you guys can ask me any question on any of these things. So the first book is I call Academic Hinduphobia, and that is because this is a reprint of a, my first book that was in 2005. It was called Invading the Sacred, written by a team of editors who basically took articles I had published and edited them. What happened is I discovered that a lot of uh, Hindu deities were being insulted, Hindu, uh, you know, Hindu deities, murtis, symbols, customs were being insulted in the American Academy. And I discovered it because I was giving millions of dollars grants. My found, I set up a foundation with my own money, and I was giving huge amount of grants to Harvard and Columbia and all these places. And when I would go there to see what they are teaching, I found that they're teaching horrible stuff. And so I would argue with them, and this turned into a lot of uh, exciting moments, and I went to conferences and gave counter-arguments. So I, and I, then I started writing papers, and you know, then I realized that this is a not just isolated instances, there's a whole system of this happening. And a friend of mine in Princeton, uh, is a scholar of Islam, uh, his, his name was, uh, uh, it'll come in a moment, he was the Pakistani ambassador to UK, high commissioner to UK. He retired, became an academician and came to Princeton University. Akbar Ahmed was his name. So he lived in Princeton where I live. And so we became friends, and one day he invited me to a book launch, and he said this is a book on a new, sub, new topic he started. He's, he's the big originator, or he claimed to be, and this is a topic called Islamophobia. So I didn't know about it, so I went there, and, to the, and he said we're giving awards every year to the person who's writing exposing Islamophobia. And that, that is the, uh, the uh, attacks on Islam. I was very happy my friend is doing this work because no religion should be attacked like that. And so 
uh, he, we searched on the net and there were thousands, tens of thousands of hits on Islamophobia. A lot of people writing about criticizing Islamophobia. I, I said, okay, maybe I'll search Hinduphobia and there were zero hits, nobody writing about it. And I said, you know, my experience shows there's a lot of problems, but nobody writing about it. So why don't we also have Hinduphobia? And that's when I started using the term. Okay, so now some people in the UK have said uh, the term existed 100 years earlier, somebody had used it, maybe, but they had not used it to critique the people I was critiquing. Maybe they used it in a different context. The people I was critiquing were using Freudian psychoanalysis to analyze, sexualize, to sexualize the Indian deities, Hindu deities. Well, Freud didn't even exist 100 years uh, prior to that, you know. So this is a more recent phenomena. Freud didn't exist in the 1800s, which is when somebody might have used the term. So mine was a, my term for a, a phenomenon I was studying. And in fact, I was encountering it in places like Harvard where I would go and have encounters with them. So I was recording my experiences with real living people, professors, faculty people. I was not just a theoretical thing. So anyway, the term Hinduphobia took off. Uh, first, our own people didn't like it. They said, why are you embarrassing us? That's like, you know, people who are victims are often not interested in uh, bringing out their victimhood because they find it embarrassing. A lot of women who have been, you know, uh, harassed or something wrong happened to them, they don't want to report because it's embarrassing. So these people also felt like that, that, you know, we shouldn't talk about Hinduphobia in public, it's bad and all that, you know. We should talk about how we're being very successful, we have a 5,000-year-old civilization and all that stuff, but let's not talk about uh, how things are getting not, not in, always in good shape. But anyway, a big movement built on uh, uh, this academic Hinduphobia because we realized that it's starting in the academy and then it's be, from there they're training seminary people, they're training people in uh, think tanks, uh, they're training media people, journalists, uh, they're, they're training people who make pu public policy, uh, government policy, uh, school textbooks, school textbooks are with, full of all this. So uh, then, uh, then I was told, okay, fine, this is fine in America, but we don't have it in India. That's what I was told by uh, you know, our Hindu leaders, that we don't, we're okay. But of course, we do have it in India. It's just that they never realized it. So after fighting all these battles in the US, I would go to India and fight them, tell them that you're having it, you just don't know it, you're not looking at it. Just go look at the, what the textbooks are. So some of the earliest fights in, uh, to fix textbooks and all of that, we started 30 years ago. So now there's a whole, all this movement is big, everybody's using these terms and everybody's into fixing textbooks and changing history and whatnot. But this is, a, this is, this is the, er, the early, this is a new reprint about eight, nine years ago of a book that was in 2005 and that time it uh, recorded uh, what the f arguments had been going on and the fights had been going on for a dozen years. So that's one. This uh, Breaking India is not about Hinduism but about India as a country. And it tells you, this also was a very big hit. It, this, this tells you all the forces, foreign forces, you know, you have people sitting in UK and Canada and USA and all these places that are targeting India and trying to break it up. And new breaking India forces keep coming up. Who they are, what is the history, what is their argument, what do they have to say, the right wing people and the left wing people, they're all many people of all kind of wings uh, are breaking India. So this was a, another eye opener because a lot of people said, no, oh, no, no, we are secure, don't you know, we have a democracy, we have this and we have military, we have these jets we bought from Russia, whatever it is. I mean, they're very proud of how great we are and therefore why are you worrying about it? 
and now everybody says, you know, we opened our eyes. We op now we realize there is a problem, and now we are all full of this uh, discussion. So I will keep uh, going fast. Then there was a, then there was a battle for Sanskrit. Now you might say, why should Sanskrit be a battle? There should be no battle for just the language. Well, um, some friends of mine who are very rich in uh, Princeton were part of uh, fundraising for uh, a chair, an academic chair at Columbia University to be given to a Sanskrit scholar. And the purpose of the chair was to represent the, uh, the Adi Shankara legacy. How many of you know who is Adi Shankara? I am very impressed. Wow, this is good. So Adi Shankara is a great figure and his legacy is uh, under the, the Shankaracharyas. There are four mats, you know, Shankaracharyas. He set them up and all over the place they teach his teachings. So to denounce him or to distort him would be a big shame for us. But our own Hindu people, because they wanted to be in the good books of Columbia University, get their name, be on the committee, and uh, you know all of that, they were, they were setting up this chair for uh, Adi Shankara studies. And this, they, had, they said that this will be the representation of Adi Shankara in the Western world, in the English-speaking world. We will be the people representing him. And uh, they got an MOU signed with the Shankaracharya of Shang Shingeri, Shankaracharya Mutt of Shingeri. And they called, told me, you also join and give this money. I said, have you read uh, what the guy is writing, this guy who is going to control the chair, this Professor Sheldon Pollock? And nobody even had any idea. They just thought he's some nice-looking guy. He talks very well. White guy comes and hugs us and says some Sanskrit <laughs> chants. Must be really good because, wow, he speaks Sanskrit. And he comes, sometimes comes in a dhoti. So he knew all the game, what, how to make the, this inferiority complex people feel happy. It's like the colonized mind is still there, you know, in our people. So I said, I'm going to read, I'm going to read out to you what he's written. So I started, he's written huge books, uh, 30, 40 of them, huge on Sanskrit, his interpretation of Sanskrit. So I told him this is bad news. If he's going to control the Shankaracharya of, uh, legacy, it is bad news. This is a very anti-Hindu, anti, it's a Hindu-phobic, anti-India, anti-Sanskrit interpretation. He calls Sanskrit the reason why there is prejudice against women, why there is prejudice against Muslims. He says Sanskrit causes prejudice against Muslims and it causes prejudice against Dalits. It is bad for progress. So the byline of this book is called, Is Sanskrit Political or Sacred? Because he says it's actually a language for political oppression and it's not a sacred language. We think it's a sacred language. Is it oppressive or liberating? We say it's liberating. It's meant for that, but he says it's meant for oppression. Is it dead or alive? He says it's a dead language, so you don't need to worry about it. So to get to this stage, I needed a year of uh, writing. You know, it takes a long time to write all this. So I wanted to stop this chair because they signed an MOU, and in 90 days they were going to put all these millions of dollars and announce the chair, and it would be too late, too late. So I started a public campaign. And I was condemned and everybody shouting at me that, who are you? Why are you doing this? All the fellows who were in the chair, uh, organizing the chair, very upset that this Rajiv Malhotra is spoiling our chance to be in the good books of Columbia University. And we, after all, we made all these millions of dollars. Now we'll be in the white man's club. You know, we'll be up there sitting with these people and looking very, uh, you know, very proud and uh, uh, powerful. And this guy is undermining it because he doesn't want the chair. So very difficult 
for me to reach the Shankaracharya himself and tell him that this is the wrong thing. All my uh, friends were sending faxes and emails to Shankaracharya uh, with my arguments. But later we found out that the administrative head of the MUT was blocking it. He had signed this agreement with Columbia University. He was in on this. He was in on it because he was given, been given a prestigious appointment in Columbia and he wanted to have this chair so he would go, you know, have a good life and they would look after him. So the administrative head of the MUT uh, was betraying this. So I, the, then some friend of mine in Chicago, her late father used to be very close to the Shankaracharya of Shingeri and she says, I can get you a private meeting, private meeting. So I went and had a private meeting. There's a whole drama about it written in this book, how I get, but they told me go through the side door and don't go front, they will stop you, what not. So I went and had a meeting with him. It was supposed to be a 15 minute, he gives no more than 15 minute private meetings. But he went on seeing me for a very long time because I asked him a very straightforward question. You know, Shankaracharya pioneered a technique called Purva Paksha. How many of you know what that is? So Purva Paksha, good, good for you. Purva Paksha means you must study the other side and then you should know, understand it. So I asked him, I said, I asked the Shankaracharya has anyone in your organization done a Purva Paksha of Professor Sheldon Pollock at, at Columbia? And he didn't even heard of such a guy. And he looked at all his Sanskrit people, expert, nobody had done any ex analysis of Sheldon Pollock's writings on Sanskrit. I said, well, I have done a Purva Paksha and this man is so full of nonsense about Sanskrit, how could you start the uh, Adi Shankara chairs and give him control? And then it will all be distorted. And Adi and uh, Shankaracharya of Shingeri kept listening. Now the guy who had signed the MOU didn't want to have the conversation continue. He kept saying, sir, we have to go for the next appointment and uh, trying to get me out of there. But the Shankaracharya said, let him sit. I want to listen to him. So I had a good long conversation in which I said, give me a few months and I will write a big memo, a big monograph, and then you can decide, you can debate, have me and Sheldon Pollock and all your experts sit here and debate. That will be the Purva Paksha and you can moderate it. So he was very impressed by that He's, because, you know, I said the young Shankaracharya went to the big authorities and debated them and that's how your tradition started. That's how this mutt was started. So I'm a nobody in the same sense when I'm up against all these mighty institutions and I'm challenging them to debate me on whether or not their take on Sanskrit is valid or not valid. So he was impressed and he supported me. So he gave me time. He said, stop the MOU going forward until, until we have looked at it. So instead of a few months, it took me a year to do this book. And this book came out, created a huge shock wave among the elites of uh, New York, uh, whose uh, sp very special, prestigious project to create this chair at Columbia was undermined because of this book. And the Shankaracharya decided not to go with it. So that was a very big victory. And I feel that if I do nothing else in my life, saving the Shankaracharya tradition from what was going to happen has been a good experience for me. So I'm, I'm happy to share that with you. So this continued, this sort of thing. And um, uh, so I, I'll, I, the, my recent book is on uh, snakes in the Ganga, this one. And this is about this, this wokeism business. And Harvard is sort of the head, head hub where the snakes are being, the nest of snakes, the snakes are being bred and put poison so they can go biting people all over. And you probably have some snakes in the Thames also, because I'm sure 
I'm sure you got some snakes around, riding around here too. I'm, I would guess. I don't know. But these, the you know, the reason I picked Harvard is because it's a big, big, big name, and I'm challenging them. This book was launched in the Harvard Faculty Club, in the Harvard Faculty Club, because there are some honest faculty people who said we want to hear this, and the video is out. You can watch it, and the, uh, one of the main guys totally supported me. He's one of the very senior guys. He said, this is a problem we are having in Harvard. It's not only against Hinduism, it's also against Christianity and against Judaism. And some religions are preferred, given special treatment, and they're not attacked, but other religions are being attacked under this new kind of a thing. And so this guy supported me. So this book talks about what is critical race theory, what, how they've turned it into critical caste theory, uh, and, and how the, uh, you know, this business of a whole identity of hundreds of millions of people being all oppressed, every one of them, and a whole lot of hundreds of millions of people being oppressors, all of every one of them, how that is now considered dogma, and you better not challenge it, otherwise they'll say cancel culture. And uh, they've got some names for all this. And so the big news in this is that it has entered India, the Supreme Court Chief Justice Chandra Chud quotes all this Harvard stuff on this, and we are responding to him. And Indian billionaires like Mahindra and, and Lakshmi Mittal and Piramal, they are supporting it. They are funding mil millions, of, tens of millions of dollars in Harvard to set up these chairs, which are producing this nonsense. And they're doing it for whatever reasons they have, whatever, whether their kids will get into Harvard or whether they'll get some business deal or they'll just feel like I'm honorary white or something like that, they'll feel. And so they're doing this kind of, uh, you know, uh, thing. Now, this is a big book, but don't get let the size scare you because half of it is things like end notes and bibliography and all. You don't even have to worry about it. That's the second half. The book itself, you just need to read the introduction chapter, the conclusion chapter, and then every one of the 23 chapters got a one-page summary, and that's all you need to read. And in less than 100 pages, you will have a very powerful thesis. You will understand a thesis of what's going on in the world, starting with the most prestigious institutions and spreading from there to all places, including European places, including France, including Germany, UK, and so on. And there's pushback also. There are people who are pushing back against all this. So I've had some very interesting debates. Uh, very rarely they'll want to debate you. They'll usually want to cancel you. So but once in a while, they there are some smart people who want to debate me. So I had a debate where uh, there was some, there were African Americans, and I said, you know, I, I've supported Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we've given funding, my foundation has given. I support it. I think they are oppressed and they need to help. They need help. But I don't believe that I am white adjacent. That's the term they use in USA for Indians. Indians are white adjacent. Now the reason they are white adjacent, very interesting logic. The highest standard of living in the United States among all ethnic groups is Indian. And then there are other Asian, type, Asian people, and then whites. And so, uh, but according to critical race theory, non-whites are not allowed to succeed in meritocracy. Uh, but we are succeeding. Uh, and so, so why is it that we are succeeding, which is contrary to their theory. So rather than uh, fixing their theory, you know, they've said that, okay, these are like white people only. Therefore, they are oppressors. So because they are succeeding, they are oppressors. Otherwise, they would not be able to succeed. So the theory is right, but they are white adjacent, which means that you are not white, but you are, you are 
good at using the white institutions the whites have set up for oppression. You are very good. You infiltrate. You learn the institutions like, like you learn to play cricket also. So you learn how to use American institutions. And now because you are using the institutions and learning to become successful, you are upholding those institutions. You are upholding those institutions. So the institutions include all the meritocracy, the government, whatever, including family. Family is an institution that uh, transmits oppression because that's how you teach your children to become oppressors. They learn by example. They watch the parents and then they also become like that. So to end oppression, you have to dismantle all institutions. Hence, this Dismantle Hindutva conference was held. Most people are people who are fighting the fighting at the rea reactively, but did not understand where it's coming from. Uh, how many of you knew about this conference, uh, Dismantling Hindutva Conference? That was good a couple of years ago. It came from this logic, that you have dismantled the structures that are causing abuse, and it has nothing to do with an individual Hindu, whether it's good or bad. The institution is bad. And so since the Hindus have picked up these American institutions, like family, as if we didn't know all these family, you know, back in India. And since they are very successful in the corporate world and technology and in academics and so on, so they're called white adjacent. So I had this debate that why, why, are, why do you believe that Indians, uh, Indians should not be given admission based on merit for uh, mathematics? If they do well in mathematics, they do for the SAT scores and all that, well, even if they're doing better, they should not be given the admission. Uh, wh what is wrong? And so the, this gentleman, very nice, decent fellow, uh, African-American, uh, he said, uh, and the room was filled of all these woke people. I was the only guy there. And most of the, my debates, I go there alone. So, uh, so the, he said that uh, the reason is that uh, you have an unfair advantage because, you know, of maybe whatever it is, your, your, since you, basic argument that if you are better at it, it's unfair to other people and therefore we should be brought down and they should be given a boost. So I said, by your logic, in basketball, the Africans are taller than me and they have an advantage. <laughs> and I think you should put a quota and you should have an Asian quota. And you should, uh, 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 the basketball team of all the US company, uh, US basketball teams should have an Asian quota for short people. <laughs> and limit the number of tall people because you have an unfair, and then they should be in the Olympics also. We should go to the Olympics and say a certain number of medals should be reserved for our Indians because we're getting only two medals, gold medals. <laughs> we should be getting gold medals. There's oppression. This is a system of oppression. You're oppressing my being short and you being tall are intimidating me and harassing me. And, and I'm the oppressed. Now, interestingly, interestingly, the students had a good laugh. They had a good laugh. The professor was very wild and very upset at me. But the students had a good laugh. They said, this is true. What, why, why is it that uh, where the, uh, the Indians are doing well, we, it's considered oppression and white adjacent, all this nonsense. But where the blacks are doing well, this is not uh, the same logic doesn't apply. So you see, this whole thing is a lot of nonsense, a lot of logic and nonsense going on. So that's one kind of books I've written. Another kind of book is not about any problem we're facing, but what is different about us in a positive sense. What is, what is worth protecting? Being different, uh, Narendra Modi made a nice endorsement, which is right on the cover. Uh, you can read it for yourself. It's, the byline is, an Indian challenge to Western universalism. Western universalism means that the West decided that its history is the gold standard. 
Hegel came up with this Western th thought, you know, that the West is the gold standard of civilization and everybody else is behind it, some more behind than others. And our job is to civilize them. That was Western universalism. So the history of the West is a template for everybody's history. And the philosophy and the ideas of society and all that are the gold standard. And that is called Western universalism. And what we have experienced as Westerners, we'll go into the colonies and various places and spread it and make them civilized. In fact, he said, uh, your present state, he was telling the colonies, your present state okay, was our past. We were like that. And our present state is your future. You have to become like we are. And so the whole colonial uh, project is to do that. So to, discover, to respond to that, respond to Western universalism, I have five major categories. Each is a big part, a chapter. Five major categories on uh, what, is, what is distinct about our culture, what is distinct about our civilization. And uh, during Q&A, maybe I can give you one or two examples, but it's a, it, there's a lot of depth. It's a philosophical book. It's a philosophical on comparative philosophy. If you want to do comparative philosophy between Indian philosophy and Western philosophy, that's what this book is for. Then this is Sanskrit non-translatables, words in Sanskrit that cannot be translated because there is no English word. So for example, when we say Shakti and they translate it as energy, but this energy, this light, does not have intelligence, is not conscious, is not conscious, it's just that material thing. Shakti is a person, Shakti is conscious. So you, Shakti cannot be killed into some dead thing called energy. So Shakti is, has energy, of course, has intelligence, is conscious, is a lot more than just energy. So like this, many Sanskrit words have no English equivalent because they don't have that same concept, they don't have that idea. Even soul, you cannot, even Atman, you cannot call soul. Because uh, until a few centuries ago, they used to believe that women don't have a soul. There was debate in the, in the church. And blacks don't have a soul. That was justified for slavery. And certainly animals don't have a soul. And plants, in our, in our culture, even plants have. Even the bacteria, even the little thing, even this COVID guy has got soul. I mean, got Atma. It really does. So, you know, the Sanskrit non-translatables, the byline is the importance of Sanskritizing English, which means English should start using these Sanskrit words without replacing them. They should just use the word pran and the word shakti and the, and the word atma. And, and there are hundreds of such words. There is no English equivalent to that. And the word sadhana and, the, uh, and all these words, you know, they, they don't have an English equivalent. So this is a way you protect yourself is by introducing this, these, this vocabulary in your speech, in your writing, in your discussions. So when somebody says, you have a caste system, you should say, we have a Varna system and a Jati system. And we are happy to talk to you about it. Caste is a European term which the Portuguese brought. So one of the projects we have is called the Casta Project. We are doing a project like that called the Casta Project, which is the history of the Casta Project in Europe before it became Indian, brought into India and imposed and turned into the caste system. And there's so much written on the Casta Project, but our people don't know it. The Spaniards wrote about it. The Portuguese wrote about it. Uh, the Spaniards are very proud that they have this Casta system. 
and the others don't have as good a caste system. Their caste system is better. So this caste system was first taken to South America, and it was taken to Africa uh, by the Spaniards. They took it all over, because before the Europe, before the British and French and Dutch started colonizing, the Spaniards were doing it, and soon after the Spaniards, the Portuguese were doing it. So just like the Britain-France competition, later there was a Spain-Portugal competition. And they were exporting their ideas and their universalism, their idea of universalism. And so that Casta project became the Cast project. That is important. People have to know that. So we are doing a lot of work on the Casta project. So there, there are non-translatables like that. If you debate in terms of your Sanskrit non-translatables, you are on solid ground. The other guy is on alien ground. The other guy has to debate in your terms. Like why the Chinese do all their work in Mandarin. All the work is done in Mandarin. And so you have to learn Mandarin and debate them and argue with them in their terms. Otherwise, they say, we don't matter. You can't explain to us in your language. We, we explain ourselves in our language. So that's the advantage of controlling your discourse and not letting your discourse be gone. I will not go through all of them because I don't have much more time. I, I want to talk about my AI book also. So this is a book called Varna Jati Kast, which explains what is Varna, what is Jati, and how are they different from caste? That's just a Sanskrit a discussion on Sanskrit non-translatables. And somehow I was very surprised that one of the conditions to uh, allowing this meeting to happen uh, is that I should not talk about this. And I said, what? I mean, you can't talk about it? What? It, have they read it? Do they know what it's about? I mean, it's like saying that we are going to a medical conference and because COVID is a problem, we are not allowed to discuss COVID. Because, you know, it's a problem, so we can't discuss it. I mean, that would be so low IQ and stupid. And, you know, I mean, I was shocked that one of the conditions imposed was that I cannot talk about this. And I said, you don't even know what it is. What, what do you mean? You should at least read it and tell me if there's a single sentence that you object to. Because I'm totally against discrimination of all kinds in this book. I'm totally against all that. I'm totally against any abuse of uh, based on anything like caste, whatever. And I'm trying to show that... Uh, that the origin, uh, the earlier social structure of Varna and Jati did not have the same things. So people should be welcoming it. People should be saying this is a very good thing. But without even thinking, this to dumb you down, they're sort of saying don't talk about it. As if you are children and maybe, you know, some something irresponsible could happen. This is now, now I'll turn over to, uh, before I got into all this, uh, I was originally a computer scientist. And my field, in, this was like early 70s, was field was artificial intelligence. That was what I studied to do uh, in terms of my technical education. And I, in those days, AI was very simple. You know, in the early 70s, we were trying to write programs to play chess and uh, recognize handwriting. So if you, reckon, if you write a word, if you write A, many people, everybody writes differently. It's not easy to have an algorithm to recognize that this is A, no matter how you write it. So we were struggling against that. And of course, it took a few decades to break through all that. But I have this uh, thing about, in, since the very beginning, uh, this whole idea of machine learning influenced me a lot uh, about machine learning, human learning. Are, is intelligence different than consciousness? Is intelligence the same as consciousness? All these things have been part of my life all along. So this book is not about writing programs. It's not a programming guide. This book is a policy book on artificial intelligence and its impact on society. Uh, 
uh, and, and what are the problems that it's going to cause, what are the opportunities. And it's called Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. And there are five battlegrounds, five battlegrounds. And I, uh, this, this is an important book, in my opinion, and a lot of uh, serious thinkers uh, in the field of AI ethics. There's a whole field called AI ethics, uh, the ethics of AI, which nobody, I think, has satisfactorily resolved. But this is an important book in that area. And this book is called The Power of Future Machines. So as a response to my book, a lot of people wrote many articles. We organized some conferences, and the best papers in these conferences were turned into this book. Into, and we launched it, uh, you know, we had many Zoom events and other events and a lot of these people uh, who are very active in the field of AI and, and as a follow-up to my book, they have produced this other book. So these are the, my main books. Besides, uh, this is a book by our young team, young people like you who have joined Infinity Foundation. Uh, we have about 12 of them. We are mentor mentoring them. And so they have written this uh, book called Ten Heads of Ravan. Ten heads symbolize the ten different intellectuals we picked who are anti-Hindu. Uh, so we picked all the ten intellectuals that are anti-Hindu and we're calling them the ten heads of Ravan. It's a metaphor for a brilliant man. Ravan was a brilliant guy, very hardworking, but twisted in his intentions against what was good for society. So these ten heads are ten big, well-named, famous people. Uh, many of them you probably know. And uh, uh, we picked them each. Each was picked by some young scholar of our, on our team. And their job was to do research on what that person has written, what they think is right or wrong about it, give it a very academic criti critical response. They're not allowed to insult anybody. They're not allowed to be demeaning, nothing personal. But just stick to the actual scholarship and give a scholarly response. So 10 scholars uh, on our team wrote the ten heads of Ravan, this made a huge wave, lot of waves, you know, because uh, those ten heads don't like to be criticized. You know. uh, but there are many more than ten. We just had ten because Ravan had ten, you know. So maybe we could do another ten of something, you know. So that is, that is basically what I do for the last 30 years. And thank you for having me, and I'd be delighted to get questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rajivji. Uh, as Rajivji mentioned, we will now be moving on to the question and answer session. Uh, of course, we've got, we've got a few questions for Rajivji that we received beforehand. Uh, that being said, please do continue to send uh, questions via the QR codes. I know you've all been uh, very active with the QR codes throughout, throughout Rajivji's speech. Please make sure you send any further questions to us. Right. Uh, the first question that we've got comes from Apologies, from Vidwat. And uh, his question is, what are your thoughts on the impact of globalization on traditional cultures, particularly the Indian one, and how can we strike a balance between preserving cultural heritage and embracing progress? Well, the second part of the question uh, assumes that progress is antithetical to culture, and that culture is retrograde and cannot be progressive. So that is what I would challenge. Uh, the, uh, the idea that traditions are stopping progress, it needs to be debated. And you need, you need to be in a forum, you need to be in a space where such debates are allowed. And uh, if you want to 
have such a debate of tradition being compatible with progress and you fly to China, you will find that the Chinese are really into this. There's no woke stopping them. They're encouraging the young people to think about Chinese tradition, Chinese language, Confucian thought, the ancient Chinese civilization and all its contributions and how to bring it in line with the most progressive modern things going on and Chinese medicine being supported by them. So you see, this is our complex that we've been told that you are backward people and this is a Hegelian idea, uh, Western universalism, uh, that since pre-Renaissance, and the scientific revolution in Europe, the grip of Judeo-Christianity was very retrograde. Again, you couldn't even say that the earth is round or something, and you couldn't even, uh, you couldn't question the dogma. And because of that, uh, tradition was opposed to progress. True, but that's Western problem. You cannot universalize it into a, so, so this, the very fact that somebody asked this question shows that they are stuck in Western universalism because that's a Western problem. And it is not a problem for other cultures. Certainly Chinese don't feel it's their problem that they don't have to Westernize to progress. They're very clear that we are going to become the most modern progressive country in the world in every sense of the term, but we are going to do it not on Western terms and we don't want to Westernize. They're very clear. So I don't understand why we think there is an issue it's a colonial attitude. The very question is like that. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, moving on to our next question. This is sort of uh, a mixture of a question that we've had, uh, you know, made previously and one that we've got from the crowd. Uh, so it's, would you agree that we have an academia today that is scared to offend anyone? And can you truly think freely without constantly running the risk of someone obviously not liking how you think? And the, the crowd bit is, how do you strike a balance between said sort of risk of offending someone and thinking freely and crossing that line where it's Islamophobia, Hinduphobia, anti-Semitism, etc. So is academia afraid of offending anybody? Well, the academia has been offending me for all my 30 <laughs> years. I mean, it depends on privileged, there are certain protected classes that you're not supposed to offend and there are certain deemed oppressors who are adjacent to white or whatever and they should be, uh, uh, you know, hit all the time. So I don't think the premise is valid that uh, you're, the academics are not allowed to offend anybody. They're offending all kind of people. Uh, all kind of people they're offending. So it's just a, a certain good group of uh, people who've taken control and they, they are offending others and they're, not, they're, they're, they're blind to that. They don't even understand that they're doing it. Uh, so the asymmetry is huge, the asymmetry in this, uh, who gets to, who has the privilege of talking against others. My personal view <coughs> is that free thought, free speech with good intentions should never be stopped. I'm totally for that, including criticism of my culture. I have no problem. I go and people can debate me and they can say that this is wrong with you, this is wrong with your country, your ethnicity or whatever. And I'll agree also, to a large extent I'll agree also. I think that's good. We have a culture of debate in our country, in our in the Hindu society is a culture of debate. How, uh, why do you think, I'm going to ask you questions now, why do you think <coughs> uh, the Abrahamic systems uh, would be compromised or undermined if free thinking were allowed. Why do you think so? Because that is really the problem. That is the crux of the world problem, has been for a long time. The Abrahamic systems have, have a 
closed book. Right? Closed book. One book. We have a whole library. They have one book. It's closed. You cannot argue against it. You cannot say this is right, wrong. You cannot uh, supersede it. Why? I mean, we know that's the case. You ask, I've asked Christian theologians, and they've said, yes, we do not want it amended. I've asked good scholars of Islam, yes, it is absolutely true. Uh, you cannot amend this. You cannot change it. It's final. But why is that so? Any thoughts? Okay, so I will, if you read this, being different, the one at the bottom, uh, yeah, the, the one here, being different, one of the innovations in this book is a theory called history centrism. History centrism means historical absoluteness, historical uniqueness. If truth is historically unique, it happened once, will never happen again, then that event cannot be questioned because the truth will never happen again. You see what I'm saying? The truth will never happen again. If the apple that fell on Newton's head and caused him to discover gravitation was a one-of-a-kind event and nobody else will have an apple fall on their head and nobody else can ever repeat the laws of gravitation, the experiments, then we have to, like the Bible, we have to study Newton's life and we have to believe in this happened on this date, on this occasion, this is the tree, he was sitting under this tree, this is the kind of apple, all the history of uh, physics would be obsessed with, the physicist would be obsessed with Newton's personal history. But that's not how physics works. The reason physics doesn't work like that is that what Newton experienced can be repeated today. And so we don't care if Newton existed, didn't exist, if he was a good man, bad man, maybe he was a man, was a woman, maybe he was trans, maybe he was old, young, maybe he lived here, maybe he lived in China, who, who cares? We don't care about his personal life because what he said can be verified today. So that kind of a, that kind of a truth claim does not is not dependent on history. It is not contingent on history. It is not obsessed with the historical record. Whereas, something that happened only once and can never happen again, and, and, and that happened in one place to some people in a particular language, a particular culture, and, and that without that, you will never know the truth. You will be blind and you are going to hell if you don't know the truth. And to know the truth, you have to know that history. That is pretty serious. That means that you cannot change that history. You'll be finished. You have to respect it and go with it. Now, that is called history centrism. And history centrism is the fundamental axiom, the fundamental premise of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And they will all agree to that. They will say, yes, that is true. Because God decided not to come repeat any of this. He's not available. There's no website. You can't go to God.com and ask him a question and he'll answer. He's not going to do that. He's not going to come here and make an appearance. Even if you're confused, he said, that's your problem. I told you once and you guys didn't get it. It's your problem. So the, the, each of those faiths is a closed system of some historical event. One thing, whether it's Moses who got the tablets or whether it's Jesus that was the one and only son of God, there's no more sons that can come and there are no daughters. So Jesus is it and therefore what his life story, what he said is the only redemption possible. The only redemption possible is God made it through this one event. And the same way with Islam, that Allah said, I'm giving you this final word. I will not speak again. Don't let anybody question me. And I'm giving it to you and that's it. You guys now figure it out. So that is that is God's uh, pathology, if you will. A, a kind of a, if a CEO behaved like that, you would fire him. 
because you would say your policies are being disobeyed by your own HR department. They're all debating and fighting. They don't know what the hell you said. And some people said you said this. Some people say you said that. And people are violating. They're having wars and conflicts. Why don't you please come back and clarify? And the CEO said, I just said it once. I never want to come back. And the history, the history of what I said is all important. It's absolute. It will never be repeated. And therefore, I put it in the custody of this group called HR. And they are going to the final authority of dogma. That is like the priests. I put it in the hands of those people. And they are the ones who will tell you the history of what I said to them, which, are, which was thousands of years ago. But they will tell you. And what they will tell you, all you guys have to obey, okay, whether you like it or not, because I'm not going to come back. Now, such a CEO would be probably fired or probably sued, prosecuted for being irresponsible. And people would say, throw him out. But that is the pathology of God that is in the Abrahamic tradition. And the Abrahamic theologians will tell you that is so. I, 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 one of the biggest and most famous theological seminaries in the world is the Princeton Theological Seminary. I know people there. I go there, attend their events. I talk about these things. And they say, yeah, that is what we believe. That is our view. So now, what is different about what I call the Rishi discoveries? The Rishis never said that God has spoken to me and told me that this is final. No, no statement says that this is from God and it is final. Basically, the Rishi says, like Newton, that I have experienced something and this is my view. I have experienced something and this is my view. And the next Rishi says, I have experienced this and this is my view. And there is an endless uh, uh, list of such Rishis. And the, the, the Rishis get this uh, exalted experience in a certain state of consciousness. And that state of consciousness is also available to you and to you and to you and to me. It is not blasphemy for you to say that you are going to pursue the same path and have the same experience for yourself. And therefore, you don't need to learn from prior history. You can get some ideas on how they did it and maybe try it on your own. It's okay for us. In fact, that is the Hindu path. The Hindu path says, don't believe in dogma. The dogma is a guide on what you should be experiencing one day for yourself. But a Christian doesn't say that you can have that you can be like Jesus. You can have the same experience that Jesus had. And a Muslim doesn't say that you can be like Muhammad and hear the same thing from Allah for yourself. That's not allowed. That is the difference between history centrism, history dependency, and the freedom of that yoga and meditation gives you. The, all these inner sciences that we call the mind sciences, the inner sciences are designed to give you a higher state of consciousness so that in that state of consciousness you can have the same experience for yourself. And that is why I'm a transformed person because I had this experience. I was at the height of my career. I was doing very well. But when I had these experiences, I said, you know, it's not like somebody else has to convince me or, I, or somebody else can refute me because I know I, I, this is true. And so I'm going to spend the rest of my life understanding it and discussing it and fighting for it because this is so true to me it's like you've had a you've somebody somebody gives you an experience of a certain fruit or a certain dish and you tasted it and then all the scholars and everybody says such a thing doesn't exist but you've actually had an experience how can you deny my own experience so this is the subjectivity experience that our tradition encourages you to have. It says go fight against all the dogma and had, have anything that comes in your way that, to getting that exalted experience, that exalted mystical spiritual experience. Anything that comes in the way, get rid of it and you should have that experience for yourself. That's very, very different than slavery to history. Slavery to history. So there's a chapter here called Freedom from History. Freedom from History. 
you know, instead of being a slave to history, freedom from history, because that is somebody else's experience. So what, what my guru used to say, who's no longer in the body, you know, left the body 20 years ago, but used to say that Bhagavad Gita is Krishna's, uh, Arjun's experience of Bhagwan. You, Rajiv, need to have your experience. You need to have your Gita, your experience, your, your dialogue with Bhagwan. You need to have. And you can have. Now you go, you go to one of the Abrahamic religions and tell him, you should have your experience with Abraham or with Allah or with God. And they'll throw you out. They're not, you're not allowed to go to the, uh, the, uh, the teacher and say, I, teach me how I can have my own, uh, how I can be like Jesus. They'll say this is called, uh, there are names for it. You know, they'll, they'll stone you to death or they'll do something like that. But in our tradition, the freedom from history is the ultimate freedom. Because the history is the conditioning. All the bad things we are doing, all kind of we are fighting each other, all that, historical conditioning. And if you can decondition yourself, free yourself from history, you can have the Rishi experience because you are already endowed, you are already Satchitanand. How many of you know what Satchitanand? Satchitanand is the essence of every person. It is a divinity in you. It is the divine in you, but you have covered it up with historical conditioning. All the historical conditioning has covered it up. And if you decondition, you un recover what's already there. It's not something new. It's already there, but you don't recognize it because you're all covered up. You see? So I have these, uh, these uh, missionaries that come to my house every so often to convert. They go door to door. And I, I can tell these, these nicely dressed, you know, beautifully dressed ladies and guys in suits and all. And they sometimes come and they ring the bell. Can we please spend a few minutes with you? I say, yeah, sure, sure. I know exactly what's going on. But I pretend like, you know, I don't know. So they come in and they, and they sit down. I offer them tea. You know, they like small talk. Oh, this is very nice. And this picture is nice. Are your kids? <laughs> like that small talk because they've been trained that you uh, don't come to the point right away, but you uh, make them comfortable. So after, after a certain amount of conversation like that, uh, they, I can, I'm looking around at them. One of them is going to be the leader who's going to raise the issue. So they say, <clears throat> sir, uh, can I ask you a question? So I say, sure, sure, ask me a question. Uh, have you been saved? So <laughs> that's the opening. So they're expecting you to answer a certain way, but I don't answer that way. I say, I was never condemned to begin with. <laughs> and I don't think you're condemned to begin with. Why would you need to be saved? You've done some crime. or I don't think you've done a crime. You're probably a good person. Why would you need to be saved? Saved from what? What have you done? I, I don't know why I need to be saved. So then they think that this guy is, either, you know, this guy is a tough guy. We have to work on him. So then they keep trying to tell me that, no, no, everybody is a sinner. Everybody has to be saved because born sinner. So I say, but uh, then I keep giving you them very innocent logic. And then they bring some senior guy next time to work on me. And so at some stage, I tell them that I come from a tradition where you're not a born sinner. You're born divine. You're born Satchitanand. Okay? You are not a born sinner, but you're born Satchitanand. So the... Uh, uh, they have these uh, big, uh, big billboards in the U.S. Some places saying, "Good news, Jesus has come to save you." Like that, you have these. I don't know if you have them here, but we have them, all over. So I uh, bought a website called Hindu Good News, HinduGoodNews.com. You go there. We have a website like that, 
And uh, I, I trademarked the term, and I didn't, of course, use it, but I trademarked the term Hindu good news. Uh, and the Hindu good news is there is no born sinner. We are born divine. That is the good news. That's really good news. Because, <laughs> because you know, suppose we were not so, that would be pretty bad. So, you see, this business of uh, Western universalism, Western idea of progress, it's all based on history-centrism. And we are not history-centric people. And that is why, if we are not dogmatic, we are not saying that this is the book you must read and this and that. You see, some people say that uh, Manusmriti is bad because it talks about Shudras and bad. How many people of you here have ever read Manusmriti? Anyone? You one person. Okay, because you're a scholar, you're reading it to understand it for, uh, not as practicing it. I never met a person, a practicing Hindu, who gets up in the morning and says, you know, I'll read the Manusmriti and decide what to do today. <laughs> it is not our guide. It is not the average Hindu's guide. You read Gita. Some people read Ramayana, right? Uh, some people read Upanishads, right? And those who do rituals do Rig Veda for rituals. Uh, some people tell stories from, you know, Puranas. There are different texts for different situations. That uh, You're allowed to do any of that, whatever you want. And you're allowed to even reject all that, but do your good karma. Okay, so there is no, we are not stuck in one book and one closed book and if you violate it and it's a blasphemy, we are not history-centric people. The problem with the modern world is that the history-centric civilization dominated the world. That is the problem of society. Next. Thank you, thank you, sir. Um, the next question that we have is, how does the academic dimension of Hindu phobia play into sort of wider, more societal aspects of it? Okay. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, Hindu phobia is sort of the norm, so normal. And you're not, if you're Hindu phobic, you challenge, you attack Hindu of this, for the, accuse them of this or that. Your paper will get through, you'll get good grades. You know, it's like that. You're, if, you, if you go the other way, you are going to be challenged, you're going to be criticized. So if you want to follow the path of least resistance, you just go with whatever is the accepted buzz, accepted doctrine about Hinduism, okay? Which may or may not be what the Hindus feel about themselves. You know, a good test of legitimacy of scholarship would be that if you put out a scholarship on some people who are practicing it, ask them, is this how you are? Is this your culture? Is this what you do? Are you like, are these your practices? If the, most of them say, hell no, then you should reject that rather than blaming them for not following your scholarship. It's almost like the scholar wants to be the dog, dogma, uh, dogmatic person and we are supposed to follow scholars, his scholar because he, he, he read some of our books. But we are not people like that. We don't care about what he thinks or what that guy wrote. We don't even care about what our own guys wrote because we're allowed to be free. We're allowed to be, uh, pursue uh, freedom. Uh, of thought and freedom of discovery, discovery of the higher self. That is what our quest is, the discovery of the higher self for every individual. So this Hindu phobia is so dangerous because it's taken a, a billion people and targeted them. And the reason I feel that it's bad for humanity is because Hinduism is a liberating force. Hinduism is a liberating force. Hindu, uh, in the 60s, the gurus came to the America 
and the new age movement was big going on and the gurus came and they brought meditation which is good now all the neuroscience is working on meditation a lot of a lot of the medical school a lot of the health all kind of people sports people athletes everywhere they're teaching meditation meditation came with the gurus from the 1960s we brought it it was considered the coolest thing then we brought vegetarianism to the west we brought it they were vegetarians before not a problem but as a big movement as a as a very conscious movement uh, of a very large number of people we brought it and now medical science says it's good for you so you see the hindu phobia is also a technique to plagiarize and steal certain good things from hinduism by saying that hindus are bad people but certain practices we can take from them it's like you won the lottery ticket thank you i'll take it from you because you're a criminal you don't deserve to win you know you're a bad guy and by calling you a bad guy i disqualify you from winning this lottery and i will take it from you i'll confiscate it from you so separating separating the what what is to be digested into the western system from what is to be rejected is made possible by having hindophobia so i have a 10 volumes i'm writing on theory of digestion where the digestion of linguistics from sanskrit to grammar many european grammars were developed after the discovery of sanskrit in europe this is true western linguists you you go to any you go to oxford cambridge kings college you go to a historian of linguistics they'll tell you that so you know digestion i a term i use digestion to mean the civilization gets digested into another civilization like a predator eats up a prey and the prey is gone and the predator has taken all the nutrients and made it part of his own body you know the prey is gone so same way you can consume another civilization and that civilization disappears and the predator civilization takes over all the good things so if you want to if you want to digest hindu thought indian culture it's a huge huge job you cannot just do it easily you have to chop it up into pieces you have to say okay this is the yoga this is this meditation system this is this this is vegetarianism this is this belief this is that belief a huge amount of digestion of indian thought has been going on into the west mathematics the digestion of astronomy the digestion of the origin of botany the origin of botany uh, you know there's a book in harvard which is in in uh, it's in dutch and it says that this is a translation from the Uh, uh, Malayalam. Uh, so that that is a 1700s or 1600s or 1700s book. Uh, the Europeans in, uh, in uh, the Dutch East India Company and the Danish East India Company existed. Uh, you know, actually, they, some of them existed before the British East India Company. Uh, there were five East India Companies. You know that Swiss had an East India Company. I don't know if you know that Swiss had. There was Swedish East India Company also. so uh, but the british and the french and the dutch are the ones that sub- survived so they in holland they have a huge national park a very respected historical place where they have a botanical garden it's a very famous botanical garden it was created by the uh, some people involved in the dutch east india company and uh, one of them the directors and somebody or relative of his they were very much into collecting botanical 
you know, specimens from various places they went to, and they found that in India, these botanical, uh, these uh, plants had been studied. There were texts on them, the old Indian texts on them, on what are the properties, how do you heal, how do you use this plant, that plant, what are its properties. So that was the origin of botany. And that origin of botany is recorded, and there are works on it, but most of us don't know about it. So there's, there's the, my uh, multiple volumes on the theory of digestion uh, cover all of this. And one of the most important things digested is what I call mind sciences. The modern mind sciences, you know, if you go to uh, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, it's a very important uh, new kind of, uh, uh, you know, psychological theory of clinical, in clinical psychology. And the DSM-5, which is the manual prescribed for psychiatry, that is the official psychiatry manual, it, it lists all these techniques. These are the techniques that are allowed. But cognitive behavior therapy is basically taken from Buddhism. Dialectic behavior therapy is taken from Buddhism. A huge amount of research by the Mind Life Institute, which is the, the, the Dalai Lama's institute, uh, set up with Western uh, physicists and my, uh, uh, bio, uh, biologists and uh, medical experts and philosophers. It has been there for 25 years. In fact, Infinity Foundation supported it in the early stages when they started, because I thought this will bring bring a cross dialogue between the civilizations. And I supported it. But then I realized it's a one-way street. They're just sucking the knowledge. They're just sucking the knowledge from Buddhists. Much of it is Hindu knowledge that went into Buddhism. And they're sucking that knowledge, turning it into their own intellectual property, denying the historical origins, erasing the historical origins, okay, which is a form of plagiarism. Nobody would do that from Greek thought. Nobody would, nobody would say, I, I came up with my own E equals MC square on my own. I mean, you'd be considered plagiarizing Einstein. Nobody would do that because those people have rights. Those civilizations are dignified and they have rights. But since we are not being given the same privilege and the same equal status, therefore, knowledge that we develop is not considered genuine knowledge until, until the white man claims it as his own and puts his stamp on it and then it's considered valid. So we got this complex of going around looking for legitimacy, saying, you please accept it and put a stamp on it. You see? So this is our problem. And this digestion has to be fought. And I've been working on the theory of digestion for 30 years. The reason I haven't published uh, these books is because it started as an article, then it became a book, then it became two volumes, and then it became more and more. So the number of examples of digestion is so huge, I need to bring out the whole thing. But I'm getting there. I'll have this out before it's too late. So the, our, uh, I would say the biggest harm, there are two big harms that Hindu phobia does. One is it uh, is obvious now, nobody will criticize me for raising this issue anymore, because one is obvious that it's bullying, it's negating your identity, it's giving you a, all, all kind of uh, inf uh, handicaps in society to be able to proudly call yourself a Hindu, that is true. But I think an even bigger one is that uh, it is a cover for theft of all the treasures and all the, all the discoveries and intellectual property of the Hindus uh, by, by quietly picking them up and turning them into something else. So the, that, the second one is what got me interested. And then I discovered in the process, I discovered the Hindu phobia's application for you know, prejudice against us. So that's why I, I look at it both ways. Thank you. Uh, this is again going to be a two-part question and you can perhaps answer it as such. 
uh, the the first part of it is about cancel culture, something that you spoke about previously. Uh, what do you make of cancel culture? Firstly, we've obviously had recent events with uh, with uh, Karan Kataria, obviously across, just across the road at the LSE, uh, Rashmi Samat at Oxford a few years back. You yourself had an event at Oxford cancelled a few years back. So how do you evaluate it as a political tool, especially vis-a-vis -vis Hindu phobia? And secondly, uh, many sort of encounters with these Hindophobic elements of academia uh, do constitute, say, aggression on, on, on the part of the academia to, to sort of shut you down. So say there's a student in this room that tomorrow finds themselves in one of these situations where they're being shouted down, where they're being asked to sort of, uh, you know, shut up and back up. Uh, how, how, how do you recommend that they, they respond to, to these things? Yeah, you know, uh, it's become so open and so uh, visible that no longer am I being told that you are raising an issue, uh, creating a problem, no problem exists. I was told all that. I was told by uh, the Indian embassy people, consulate people. I was told by the uh, these uh, RSS people, BJP people, uh, VHP people. Now they're very different. But in those days, uh, I, when I talked about all this Hindu phobia, I got emails from India saying, no, 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 I come to America, I visit all these temples, we have beautiful temples, nobody comes and vandalizes them. And I, I was hosted by students in such and such place and we did, uh, we did Diwali. So, you know, our people thought that some little cocoon and island and silo here and there, a temple is a protected area, and just because there's nobody coming in and destroying the temple, therefore we are all okay. And I would say that's not true, because that's not good enough, because you should see what's in the curriculum, you should see what's in the school curriculum, college curriculums, what's in the media, you should see what's in the policy making, you, you should find out what it is beneath the surface. But people were so superficial, our Hindu leaders so superficial, political leaders so superficial, not willing to go beneath the surface and invest some time to investigate this, so they would not give me the benefit of doubt. So now at least I know the problem is so serious, which is sort of sad, but at least I, was, I can say nobody can deny what I've been saying for so long. So that, in that sense, it's good that the problem has become so bad. It's like you tell a patient early on that this is, going, this is happening to you and the patient doesn't want to listen to it until it becomes really bad and then you cannot deny anymore. So this is what has happened to the Hindu community as a patient, if you will. Uh, now, the, the, uh, the, still the diplomatic people, aren't, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs don't want to touch Hindu phobia. They don't want to. Uh, they'll privately support you, but publicly they don't want to raise this. Maybe a little bit they're beginning to talk about this, but they have not taken it on. I, in fact, told the Ministry of External Affairs, uh, the ICCR that own the Nehru centers and, or, and these kind of things all over the world, I've talked to all their ministers many times, that Infinity Foundation wants to do a conference on uh, Indology in the Western world. And we will fund it, we will pay it, we'll bring in the scholars, we'll have all of that, but we want your blessings. We just want symbolically. The, in, like China, the Chinese people hold conferences on uh, you know, prejudice against China and they, all that, all kind of things they do, and their government supports it. And they, even at places like Harvard, they support it. But our government has not had the courage to support this kind of movement so far. We have the material, we have the, uh, we have the credibility, we have the scholars, uh, we, we are doing all this on our own anyway, but government hasn't supported us. So I would say that uh, if government isn't supporting, and gurus are not supporting. Why wouldn't CDC go around and uh, respond to a Hindu phobic thing? Why not? 
why wouldn't they why wouldn't baps they got sort of much money they got very good people i really respect them and they have a lot of clout uh, you know they could hire a pr company they could develop a documentary uh, they could do all kind of things to fight back but they are not doing it so it's left to individuals like you guys it is such so, so sad that you've been betrayed by your own by my generation my generation of people i've tried to educate them and after 30 years of working day and night on this they're getting more and more aware but they haven't been able to put their money where their mouth is and do something about it so their children are facing all these things so what are what are you to do i think you have to be first of all very strong inside yourself very strong through knowledge through knowledge you have to be strong you have to understand and i i have written all these books for people like you to read and even if you read the summaries the summary version and the introduction and little bit here and there you will get a huge amount and i do videos all the time uh, with the help of good people like you know julian helping us make this video so we're doing these videos all the time so that people like you can have this knowledge so the idea is that if you are well educated well informed you are empowered it's not easy to bully you and bring you down even if outwardly you have to say you know this guy is kind of nonsensical i'm not going to i'm not going to fight him out because he's he's is not going to help but it's not going to affect me inside you should the more important thing is protect your inner sense of pride and identity and self confidence that you should not allow them to break okay and then whenever you can make a little group make a little group because there is power strength in numbers make a little group and start discussing on a regular basis i have groups in canada where they have taken this book being different and they've uh, every uh, week or every two weeks they meet and they discuss 5 uh, 10 pages and they go on next time they discuss 5 10 pages one person takes they take turns to read and lead the discussion and it, it, when they've gone through the whole book their life is transformed their life is transformed and so you can transform yourself and your friends in such a powerful way that this becomes a big asset and the fact that people are prejudiced against you can be used to to turn around and make yourself a stronger person now as far as impacting the broader society is concerned it's not that easy for students to make a big difference it's that sad but you can make a pledge that one day i am going to uh, not one day i'll relate to to a future all my time all my life all my when i have a job whatever i'm doing i'm going to allocate a certain portion of my resources and invest in this and that's my that's my paying back to my civilization from which i got so much so you should you should invest in the cause in however small and modest way you can thank you uh and now on to our final question uh you know you've you've rightly pointed out how things have probably uh gotten so bad with the patient now that the the decay is for everyone to see that being said though uh is there anything about sort of uh you know the situation or the response to it that perhaps encourages you well the the most encouraging thing is that there's no longer a denial we are no longer the, as a as a community we're no longer in, in denial Uh, and this has become so widespread that there are so many people trying to solve the problem and there are petitions and there are conferences and there are all these things going on which is very good news because until the patient understands the problem you know they're not going to do anything about it now i think the next stage will be because in this book snakes in the ganga we've attacked or we've criticized 
the Indian billionaires who are funding the wrong places. I don't know if there are people funding SOAS and Oxford and Cambridge. I think there are some chairs here also in this country which are Hindu-phobic, which are being funded by Indians. There are. Uh, and I've written about it somewhere. But I focused on Harvard for now. So now that we are pointing this to the Indian people, that your own billionaires who are hypocrites in one place in India, they're nationalists and they're patriotic and they're getting all these recognition and all that and they're being lifted up as idolized. But uh, he actually, behind your back, in, when they go overseas, they're funding all those things. And this has to come out. So there is now some... Uh, they'll never admit it, but there are some changes that I think will happen in the next year or two by some of these billionaires. Either they'll stop that funding, which will create a huge problem for Harvard-type people if the Indians withdrew their funding. It's not that they need the money, because Harvard has got a lot of money, but that credibility which supports this work will be gone. More, more dangerous than Mahindra's money and, and uh, Piramal's money and Lakshmi Mittal's money is the fact that the, the people who work there in those centers are using their family name, the family name of these Indian elites on their cards and on their banners and, and that is how they are getting legitimacy. And so, you know, how can I argue, how can I go to the Wall Street Journal or CNN or somebody and argue against uh, a report produced by the Mahindra Center at Harvard? Because it's the Mahindra Center and who am I by comparison? So we are now taking that on and I think that will be a, that will start a domino effect. Once, once these billionaires realize that we cannot be on both sides, we have to choose sides, and once they start backing out, backpedaling, sending instructions to their people in Harvard and Oxford and so on, saying, we don't want to support this, it's making us look bad, back out of this. Once they start doing that, things are going to change. Things are going to change. So now, for instance, uh, I just bumped into this lady who runs the Jaipur Literary Festival. Uh, they banned me because once they invited me and I told them all these things. <laughs> and I told, I said it right on the face of uh, Daryl Limple, who's this Scottish guy who runs this thing, is a, he's, like, he's like the emperor, you know, and they think that he's a big shot and all that. I told him right on his face. And uh, the crowd loved it, but they said, you're not going to get him back. <laughs> so, uh, but she runs uh, uh, Namita Gokhale, nice lady, good friend of mine, and she runs it, but it's not within her powers. Uh, these people run the show. So I just uh, bumped into her. I'm staying at the St. James and uh, she's staying there too. I, she just walked up to me and we shook hands and she said, oh, we're having uh, our Jaipur Literary Festival in London nowadays. I said, I didn't even know about it because now I couldn't care less. It's insignificant because there's so many other things like that. It's no longer that huge one place that you have to get into. And their sponsors who used to fund them millions of dollars a year every time have stopped funding them and they are in begging around looking for donations, looking for sponsorship. So now a Hindu businessman has funded them and he, he, he told me that we are going to change them. We are going to squeeze them. We are going to stop inviting those kind of scholars that they used to and start inviting more diverse voices. So you see this kind of a thing is happening. It's taken a long time and people have paid a lot of price for it, but it is happening. Gradually, institutions are beginning to realize that you cannot push these Hindus around. And, and numbers matter. We have a large, we have a lot of numbers. So uh, there is obviously jealousy in the Western world in certain countries because they realize that this, uh, this country got decolonized politically 
and then it got decolonized economically. It's becoming economically strong. And now they're trying to become decolonized intellectually, you see. So this is, this is bad news for them. So they're coming up, they're, they're making this breaking India even worse. The reason breaking India forces are being intensified is because they don't want to let go of this. They don't want India to become like another China. One China is bad enough. <laughs> and if India were to rise and it become another one, that would be like two different Chinas. And it would be really bad. So you see, the, and the real problem is our own people are for sale. India is for sale by Indians. That's the problem. That we, there's no shortage of Indians that you, you can buy for some on some basis for some reason, some price you can pay. I always tell my friends who are sold out that you know you should have asked for a higher price. <laughs> I tell them that you 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 should ask for a higher price. In fact, what I did is I, once I I have had situations where I start uh, exposing. The way some Indian has been given a grant to write all this stuff at Harvard, write all this stuff against India or at Princeton or some university like that. And then those people start wanting more money because they're saying it's risky. So we are doing, we have to be paid bigger grant because it's no longer a business class ticket and a little bit of stipend is not good enough. Now, now they have to be paid more. So by raising the price of selling out, uh, then they can buy fewer people. That is, that is also what we can do. So I think we have a good game. It's taking a long time and I wish more big shots, big institutions, businessmen, gurus, governments would step in. So it wouldn't be just a few good students like you on your own. Right, that brings us to the end of our question and answer session. Before I hand over to Ria for the vote of thanks, I uh, would like all of us uh, if we could please give Rajiv Ji a massive round of applause for his time and his answers.